Hello, and welcome to Alexander Disease Research Update, episode number 15, recorded on April 3rd, 2023. It's certainly been a long time since episode number 14, which was recorded five months ago on November 8th, 2022. We've been waiting for new publications to appear, but I think there will be a lot for 2023, and today we begin with the first. I'm Albie Messing from the Waisman Center at the University of Wisconsin, and with me today is the lead author of the publication that we're going to discuss, Dr. Davide Tonduti. Davide is an assistant professor of child neurology and psychiatry in the Department of Biomedical and Clinical Sciences at the University of Milan, Italy. Davide, since this is your first time on the podcast, can you say a bit about your background and current position? Hi, Albi. Hello, everyone. First of all, thank you very much for, for, for this nice invitation. I'm very happy to be here today. Um, actually, yes, I am a child neurologist. I work uh, at the University of, Mila of Milano, uh, but also I work at the uh, Children's uh, Hospital in Milano, Italy, uh, where I am the coordinator of the Leukodystrophy Center of my, at my institution. Actually, I was trained in child neurology and psychiatry in, at the University of of Pavia and during the residency school I also spent a few months uh, working at Washington Hospital, uh, Children's Hospital, uh, at the leukodystrophy clinic uh, directed by Adlin van der Ver. Uh, Children's, Children's National Medical Center. Uh, yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> and then after the, the residency school I, I, I spent one year in, in Paris, in France, uh, where I, I worked at the, the French Reference Center for, for Leukodystrophies. And then I, I completed my PhD in co-direction between the University of Paris and the University of, of Pavia. So after the PhD, I, I worked a, a few years at the Neurological Institute here in Milano, and then I moved to my actual position. Well, it's great to have you. Thanks again for being Thank here. Thank you. Before we get started, please send feedback to AXDRUPodcast at Waisman, that's W-A-I-S-M-A-N dot W-I-S-C dot E-D-U. Today, our topic will be a publication that attempts to answer the question of whether there are distinct subtypes of Alexander disease, and if so, how many. Previously, we've heard of three different ways to classify different types of the disease. The first going back to the 1970s, based simply on age of onset, and then two others published in 2011, based on the specific areas of the brain that are affected. The new publication that's up for discussion today is by Vaya et al., entitled Type 1 Alexander Disease Update and Validation of the Clinical Evolution-Based Classification, published in Molecular Genetics and Metabolism. Actually, this is a follow-up to a study published in 2021, also by Davide and his group, in which they analyzed the trajectories of 21 patients who were being followed in Italy. And in that paper, you came up with the idea that what was previously called type 1 actually consisted of four distinct subtypes, which you called types 1A, 1B, 1C, and 1D. Here, in the current paper, the analysis was expanded to include 65 patient-case histories that had been published since the first report by Alexander himself in 1949. So, Davide, in episode eight, 
Amy Waldman and I talked about your publication from 2021. But can you put the two papers together for us and tell us your view of the overall goal and how you designed the studies? Yes. Um, so, so as, as you know very well, uh, we are actually living a kind of new area for, for Alexander disease because there are new treatment options being evaluated and developed. And so in this context, I think that one of the, the greatest difficulties in, the, in evaluating the efficacy of new treatments is the very uh, the, the big heterogeneity of, of the disease. So I think that the main goal of our work is to have identified some common trajectory of the, of the disease progression. So uh, yes, with our, as you mentioned, that this is a, a, a follow-up paper. So in our first paper, we focused uh, on, on, on a small cohort of, of Italian patients because it was uh, about 21 patients. And we had the impression that we, by um, a qualitative analysis of the, uh, the, the clinical data, we had the impression that we could identify some common trajectories. And particularly, we distinguish four main uh, subtype of type 1 uh, Alexander disease. So uh, in type 1A uh, Alexander disease, we have patients who present with uh, uh, developmental delay. They usually present very, very early from birth. They do not uh, acquire any postural control and they uh, have a very early fatal uh, course. Then we have type 1B patients who usually present with developmental delay and they have some more um, acquisition they 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 can they can acquire head control sometime also the sitting position but they do not acquire autonomous deambulation then they start deteriorating usually before the age of six years uh, and then we have type 1c and type 1d patients uh, in both cases patients usually acquire autonomous deambulation even if with even if with uh, delay but in type 1c patients uh, the uh, the uh, type 1, 1C patients start deteriorating between the age of 6 and 12 years. There could be a question about exactly what you mean by autonomous ambulation. So does that mean you can walk on your own or are you mm -hmm. allowed to have any kind of support at all? It's with no support. Autonomous with, with no support. Okay. Yes, this is what we decided to consider. Yeah. And then how do you distinguish type C and D? Uh, the, the main distinguishing feature is the age of when the, the patients start deteriorating. Also, uh, in type 1D, a subset of type 1D patients can present normal motor development and only a mild uh, cognitive impairment. So they also have some neurodevelopmental delay, but which could be limited in some cases only on cognitive uh, areas. But otherwise, the main distinguishing feature is the age of, of the, when they start deteriorating. So you take that idea about subclassification and then you try to expand it to a retrospective analysis of the prior literature, right? Yeah, exactly, because the main limit of this first study was 
that the, the cohort was a bit small. And so we wanted to, to see if it was still valid when applied on a larger group of patients. And so this is the idea where we start when we uh, decided to do the second study. Um, so we performed a literature review uh, for articles published in PubMed between uh, 1949 to date. So we retrospectively reviewed uh, all, all papers focusing on the clinical data about the, the developmental uh, milestones and the deterioration and so the disease progression over time. We excluded the uh, adult onset Alexander disease, so we focused only on, on pediatric onset uh, patients. Of course, we included only those patients for which there was uh, enough clinical data available. Approximately how many of those patients were after the genetic basis of the disease was discovered? And the reason I ask is um, there could be some question about whether the diagnosis was really accurate prior to the introduction of genetic testing. So the vast majority uh, of patients was mutation proven. There was, I think, uh, I, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was just four or five patients who were uh, not mutation proven, and most of them was proven by cerebral uh, biopsy. So how well did it work? Uh, actually, we were uh, able to identify uh, 205 patients from 108 articles. And among them, for we had enough uh, uh, clinical information from 65, uh, 65 patients. And so the final number of patients included in the study was uh, 65. 17 uh, of them uh, had uh, features fulfilling criteria for type 1A Alexander disease, 15 patients for type 1B, six for type 1c five for type 1d then we have three patients for which um, i mean three patients who acquired autonomous deambulation and so they could be uh, type 1c or type 1d but they were they were both too young to discriminate uh, when they would have started deteriorating and so we decided to call them like uh, to call them type 1c 1d and then we have uh, 19 patients who fulfill criteria for type 2 Alexander disease. We only have an, an exception. So we have a patient who have features of type 1D Alexander disease, but who started deteriorating at the age of three years. So much earlier than expected using our, our classification. But this was the only exception that we found in the whole group of 65 patients. So we, we still think that the classification could be considered as, 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 as valid. Did you find it straightforward to put people into these different bins? Or did you feel that it, it, it was a very subjective assessment and two people might come up with a different classification and then you discuss it and then you come up with a consensus? How did that work? Now, I think it was, I mean, it, our classification is quite easy. 
And so I think it could be used by anyone without very big problem. I think, I think that there is no great interrater variability because it's very, very basic. It's very, very simple when the patient acquire autonomous deambulation or not. So uh, it's very easy. Uh, also, I have the impression that it is easier to classify patients when uh, they ha are affected with type 1 Alexander disease. And it's probably more difficult with Alexander disease type 2. So I think the other main question is going to be, at what point can you predict the trajectory of a patient? Can you say you're going to be in type 1A, B, C, or D? I think that this is the very big limit of our of our proposal uh, so far. I think that the um, the only data that can that which can predict the evolution is the the acquisition of autonomous deambulation. Otherwise, we don't have other tools so far. So I think that this is the one of the most important things where we have to on which we have to focus in the next future to find any marker uh, which can predict from the beginning to which subgroups the patients will belong to. Well, I was going to ask you what you think are the next steps, but you've started to answer that already. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the main, the, the, one of the most important thing now. We are actually uh, starting with uh, uh, analyzing the MRIs. So we are starting focusing on, on, on neuroradiology, but uh, we, we, we have to work also on, on other tools uh, like uh, biological markers uh, or why not also genetic, uh, genetic findings, which could be associated to one or another subtypes. Can you summarize in a, just a few sentences then what you think is the key message here, both for patients and their families, as well as for clinicians? Um, so I think that, um, uh, so we, with our work, we confirmed that despite the great variability of uh, phenotypes in, in Alexander disease, that there are some uh, shared trajectories. Uh, and that with our with with this second paper with our literature review, I think we confirm the applicability of our classification proposal. Um, I think that one of the most important goal uh, of our or or implication of our work is for clinical trials, because uh, before our work, if we have a patient. Uh, a type 1 patient included in a trial, and so I treated one type 1 Alexander patient uh, who present a very long uh, uh, clinical stability. We were not able to, to, to discriminate if this was related to the treatment or to the natural history of the disease. Now we know that if this patient, uh, uh, this patient is a type 1B patient, Probably this is due, the long stability is related to the treatment. If this patient was a type 1D, it was probably the natural history of the disease. So I think that this is the main, the most important implication of our work. Well, that's going to be a big issue since there's a clinical trial underway. So we'll <laughs> have to wait and see how that, how that plays out. Thank you again, Davide. Thank you. Now for some email. 
You can send your questions to axdrupodcast at wasteman.wisc.edu, and we'll try our best to address them in a future podcast. Please send any feedback about these podcasts to the same email. Question number one. Are multipotent mesenchymal stem cells relevant for a potential treatment for Alexander disease as a regenerative medicine? Well, this is a very interesting uh, but difficult question uh, because there are many different definitions of mesenchymal stem cells. This has been a growing field over the past perhaps decade. These are stem cells that are derived from uh, different parts of the body, such as bone marrow or fat, and they are able to be differentiated into different cell types, including, uh, according to some investigators, into cells of the central nervous system. So people are certainly studying them in the hope that they could be used for transplantation in neurological diseases, including white matter disorders. Whether they're useful for Alexander disease yet, I don't know. Nobody, to my knowledge, is studying that. I think our approach for quite some time has been to focus on the astrocyte problem because that's the initiator of the disease. And while we fully expect that there may be a need for complementary treatments later on, once the astrocyte problem is fixed, it's still too early uh, to do that right now. Uh, of course, we're hoping that the antisense suppression of GFAP is the ticket to restoring astrocyte function. Uh, we'll just have to wait to see the outcome of the clinical trial. Question number two, some medications can be delivered intranasally, which is to say using sprays into the nostrils. Uh, it turns out this route can bypass the blood-brain barrier. Can this be done with antisense oligonucleotides? So of course, right now, the route of administration for the antisense oligonucleotides for the treatment of neurological diseases is by uh, the intrathecal route, which is by inserting a needle into your back, similar to a lumbar tap, and then introducing the oligonucleotides directly into the cerebrospinal fluid, where it then diffuses throughout the central nervous system. There's a lot of appeal, of course, if you could do the same thing by uh, an intranasal route, which would be much less invasive than the intrathecal route, but there's almost no literature on that that I know of. I found one publication in 2021 in the journal Pain, where these investigators were trying to suppress the expression of a gene called HUR for the treatment of neuropathic pain, but nothing else. And I can only assume that means that there's a lot of concern and maybe some data to say that the antisense oligonucleotides do not distribute as well across the entire central nervous system by the intranasal route as they clearly do by the intrathecal route. That's pure speculation on my part because none of it's been published. But basically, there's really no evidence yet that the intranasal route would be as effective as the intrathecal route. That could certainly be a topic for future research. That's all for today's episode of Alexander Disease Research Update. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Davide for joining me today. Our theme song was written by Charlie Allenson, special technical assistance from my daughters, Zoe and Rebecca, and from Clark Kellogg at the UW's Wasteman Center. And thanks to our donors for these podcasts, the Barrett Riddle family. I'm Albie Messing. 
See you next time.